0: Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Idle Chatter. I'm Ray Bohax, the Hot Rod Farmer, coming to you, as always, from Cat Swamp Road in Warren County, New Jersey. I want to thank you so much for, for listening and for being part of the Hot Rod Farmer family, right? Because you're all Hot Rod Farmers. If you're listening to this, you're a Hot Rod Farmer, so I want to thank you for that. And also, I just would like to ask you to do me a favor, please that if you can send me an email at com, and just let me know where you're listening from so that I could put a pin in my listener's map and I could get an idea as I've said where my audience is, excuse me, so that my uh this um uh, nasal passages of mine are all plugged up as always, but uh I apologize for that so I can know where my listeners are from and then what I could I use that data so that I could fine tune my shows so I know that there's topics in different parts of the country and in different people in different agricultural communities. Uh, for instance let's say you have, you have an orchard versus a row crop operation then there's different equipment and i could target it that way so i want to thank you so much in advance all you could do is send me an email at Farmer at farmmachinerydigest.com and let me know you could let me know as much about your operation as you want or as little as you want so it's and if you don't want be on the podcast or the radio with your name excuse me just uh let me know and i'll just record give you a pin in my map and i'll send you an email telling you that that pin is there so i right, let me see what else is going on well this week i ran down to uh richmond virginia i went wednesday morning and i uh had a meeting with uh, Rural Radio Series XM the channel that my my show is on Farm Machinery Digest Radio and uh, had a good meeting over with them and they are thank and I'm happy to say that they are renewing my contract it was a one year contract so it's being renewed and we're going to be moving forward with that show they're very happy with it and I'm blessed to have it and to be able to connect with that audience on Rural Radio Channel 147 And I also want to tell you that if you happen to listen to that show, I am going to be doing some other, uh, well, I'm, I'm not going to change the show by no means. I'm not changing that, but I'm going to add something to it on occasion. And it's something I wanted to do with the podcast, but it never really happened. And so I'm just telling you that. So if you do listen to the show on Rural Radio and the podcast, that you'd be aware of this and you maybe would find, hopefully you'd find value in it. The the whole purpose of this journey, and it really is a journey, of the farm machinery digest website, and the idle chatter podcast, and by two, two what I call short shows, of uh, bushels and cents, and uh, hot rod farmer minute, and then also to a certain extent the uh, on the road with the, on the road with Ray Bohacks, the hot rod farmer. Right, that's the only show I interview people. I interview, have a conversation. I like to use the word interview, because it's not an interview; it's a conversation. But the whole premise of this journey, as I was saying, is to have a transfer of knowledge to you, the audience, to the people, the good people in agriculture and horticulture in the United States and around the world, and those that are just interested or use machinery. Like I said, we have people that listen that uh, are on a Mississippi riverboat, that are, that are truck drivers, that are in the mining industry, what have you. It makes no difference. The engine does not know what it's in. So it was this transfer of knowledge because there is a lack of of transfer of knowledge today. So on that theme, what I'm going to be doing in maybe once a month, or I don't want to do it twice a month on the radio show because it's only once a week. So maybe 18 times a year, 12 to 18 times a year, I'll say, is I'm going to have a, it's still going to be Farm Machinery Digest Radio, but that episode is going to be called Getting to Know. And in that, and that, I'm going to bring a guest on from a company or from an organization, and we're going to. Now, it's it's not going to it's not going to be an endorsement of that product. It's not going to be anything, but it's going to be a transfer of knowledge. So, arguably, let's say that, uh, like for instance, Massey Ferguson, they have the new 8s track that it's coming out. So I would like to talk to them about coming on my show. And it's not going to be, I don't want a salesperson. It's not going to be a sales presentation. Oh, we got the greatest tractor in the world. Oh, we got the greatest, you know, uh, the pickup truck in the world. No, it's going to be an engineering overview, a discussion of the mechanical aspects, the interesting facts on that piece of equipment or that tool or whatever it may be so so we get to know it. And then you decide whether, whatever that is, the X, Y, and Z is good for you and for your operation. So it's going to be a transfer of knowledge because the reality being that today, and no disrespect to anyone who's listening, who's in the dealership level, mm-hmm. right? They really don't have the true technical knowledge, and and I'm I'm talking about the nuts and bolts technical knowledge, not how to program a screen on a on 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 a, on a monitor inside a combine, but the, the the nuts and bolts technical knowledge, and that's what I want to bring to you. To the audience, and then you could learn about this. these equipment equipment. I'm going to do tools too. For instance, there's a number of tools I want to represent and represent to the audience uh, through that. So hopefully, that's going to be going starting after the new year. I have a couple. Of, I have a couple of people lined, or a couple of products, I should say, or companies, hopefully lined up already, and we'll see how it goes. But uh, I'm going to. One of the things I spoke to about with SiriusXM was that. I would like to be able to see if I could post my shows Farm Machinery Digest Radio also as a podcast uh, for the simple reason being is that if you miss it on the radio, you can't find any place else. So it's not to compete with idle chatter because it's not the same topics but it's, the, uh, it's an adjunct to it. And just like on the radio, I say that Idle Chatter is an adjunct to that radio show. Radio show. So hopefully there seems to be a sticking point with that, but, um, but whatever. But if it, it it gets to be a sticking point that I may just bring those segments over and integrate them into Idle Chatter, but whatever. But the most important thing is for me to get the information to you and then you do it at what you want. It's that It's the transfer of knowledge and that's what this is all about. And the other thing I want to tell you, let me look like, at my cheat notes here. Well, the on the road uh, series is going to be back. I haven't done one since this past summer when I went out to the learn to the learn farm because I got involved with the harvest and when I was sweet corn and what have you. And so the on the road series is is going to be coming back. And I am going to be recording this week with Bob Ida. So uh, not only is he a, a long time and a wonderful, wonderful friend of mine, but he has a, he's a, a wonderful story of how he got to where he, 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 where he is and how he never lost his humbleness. So hopefully, uh, next week that show will post. and it's going to be on the road to, to Bob Ida. And that's going to be very, very interesting. And I'm looking forward to it because I, every time, even if I know the person, a few times I knew the people that I did the On the Road series with, and I learned so much more about them. And honestly, they learned about themselves. So that's going to be coming up next. And I, as and if you know, I do an alternation between a uh, a farm person and a car person. So passionate about agriculture, passionate about cars or machinery. You have to be passionate. You don't have to be famous. You have to be passionate. So he's going to be next, Bob Ida and then i spoke to lauren fix the other day a matter of fact i was going down to uh virginia i called her from the uh, car and she was coming back from michigan heading back she lives up in buffalo new york and she was uh testing a 2022 i guess honda has a new civic i'm not really into those cars but i'd like to see it anyway but so she was taking taking that back to buffalo and lauren fix is the car coach so if you look her up she's the car coach she's on the uh very 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 knowledgeable well-established lady within the automotive community very successful and she's on uh, the uh Weather Channel, Fox News, I think Bloomberg, she's all, she's basically all over the map and so uh, I'm very happy that uh, that she wants to be on my podcast and she's up in Buffalo and her husband owns a company, his name is Paul Fix and I forgot what the name of his comp- company is but they make replacement brake lines and fuel lines for older cars so like muscle cars and restorations so when I do the podcast with her, The On The Road, that I will... Uh, obviously have her tell us a little bit more about that but i'm really looking forward to having lauren she's a very very well-known person within the community uh, automotive community and journalistic wise and she's on North American car of the year uh committee she's just just a a real great person very down to earth and very humble and very knowledgeable and then after Lauren we're going to go back to the farm and and I'm hoping to get to to get John Lima from Lima Farms in New Jersey and John has an interesting background because he was a dam builder that became a farmer so that is the roundup that's going to be hopefully happening within the next month or two uh, with the on the road series. So that's uh and then on today on the special delivery section, I'm going to go back to uh, to John from uh, from Colorado. I can never what I mean. I got it here. Oh, I got it? Where it, I thought I had it, Holyoke, Holyoke, Colorado. And I answered a question from him last week, but he had a two-part question, and he's having a problem with his 2012 Ford F350. It has just under 200,000 miles, of diesel 6.7, and he's having a problem sometimes when it goes into regeneration, it goes into D-rate. So I'll to explain that and give, and I'll provide my thoughts on that, which may not be right, but they are they are my thoughts. And also, as an aside. To this we're just catching up, uh, 49.6 miles per gallon with the old Fiesta going down to Maryland, Maryland to uh, wherever I went to Virginia, Richmond, Virginia is 467 miles each way, so it was about 940 miles round trip and 49.6. I got 49, I think, 0.5 going down, and 49.6 coming up or. Or 0.6 and 0.7 so definitely right there with repeatability if it was a drag car you'd say it runs the number right it runs the number every time so the fiat the fiat the fiesta there's always bumping just around 50 miles per gallon so i was very very happy with that 200,000 miles it has the original air filter in it believe it or not and not an original air filter because i don't maintain it i take the thing out of the, out of the air box it looks it's not even discolored it's unbelievable so uh it's got the original air filter in it yet i never went to i never went more than thirty thousand miles twenty-five thousand miles on an air filter with any other car before this but i take it out i keep looking at it i look at it it's uh it's not dirty and uh like i said it's not even discolored so uh, so who knows i guess they've come a long way with the way they duck the air and also it's a small motor it's 1.6 liters so you figure even if it's if it's running at fifty percent VE going down the road, volumetric efficiency, it's only flowing the air for eighty cubic inches, but still you would tend to think after two hundred thousand miles that it would get dirty but they must just be the way they duck the air. And, um, and, and and also, I have to honestly say that if the car lived in, in Chicago or New York City or Los Angeles, I'm sure it would not have gone, had the air filter go 200,000 miles and still look good. I mean, it's basically always out in the country in a rural area and running down a road in rural areas. So I guess that has something to do with it also. All right, but that is that. I'm all up. To, I'm all up to date with you. I'm excited about the uh, getting to know series. I'm excited about the on the road with Bob Ida, Lauren Fix. You could look her up, the Car Coach, and you could look up Bob Ida, B O B Ida. And I don't think you'd be able to find much on John Lima, but it's Lima Farms over in New Jersey. All right, so check that out, and uh, we'll look forward to bringing you those shows. All right, what I am going to talk about today and hopefully not go too long and put you to sleep, is I'm going to talk about electrical, or I'm going to talk about, let me probably put it this way, drift, D-R-I-F-D, drift in an electrical circuit, or an electronic circuit, I should say. And you may be familiar with that term, you may not be familiar with that term, but it's very, very common, and it's getting more and more common, and I'll explain why as I go more into the show today. And it's something you have to recognize, and something you have to be aware of. Now, if you go back, a uh, in the archives of Idle Chatter, I did a show months back. I don't know, maybe it was a year ago. I don't think it was that long, but about diag- about diagnosing electrical circuits, and I spoke about heating up the heating up the part, cooling the part, and that was that was a. a a module module type of approach so in other words you took the solenoid out and uh, you put it you put it in the freezer and then you put it back in and see how so if it works, you put it in the oven you heat it up so that was a modular m- modular meaning a unit a type of a, a, a complete unit approach but what i'm talking about today is not that i'm talking about the drift of Either a sensor, or the drift of circuitry, or drift of a microprocessor, or a semiconductor that's used in farm machinery, engines, uh, engine controls of road vehicles, a lot of other things. And and drift, as you would, the best way I like to explain drift is it's not it's a simplistic term. And if you're going down the road, right? Let's say you're driving down the road and you you you're wandering over to the center line or you're wandering over to the, to the shoulder right, you're drifting within the lane. So you're moving all around. You're still going straight. You're not making right angle turns. You're not stopping. You're not accelerating. <clears throat> excuse me, but <clears throat> Excuse me. But your path is drifting in that lane. Well, that is something that can happen to an electronic circuit. Like I said, a semiconductor it could happen to a sensor. And that drift causes a lot of problems and oftentimes what you'll find is that that drift is enough to cause either a malfunction or it could a malfunction in in whatever that circuit is operating it could cause a fault code and it could also cause for instance let's say like in john's condition possibly a d-rate condition in a diesel engine or anything else or it could shut down something so it's it's important for you to be familiar with electronic circuit drift and sensor drift when i say circuits i mean sensors microprocessors as i said i don't want to belabor it so you just keep that in mind that 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 everything i'm going to talk about in the show today is appropriate for all electronics now what will happen is that we have to back up a little bit is that when An electronic circuit, whatever it may be is designed and the components that go into the electronics to make up that circuit and that circuit board are designed, they have to meet a specification. Now Now for the most part, and not for everything, but for the most part, if you were to look at electronics, is that most components on a circuit board, be it a semiconductor, be it a resistor, be it a diode, are off the shelf items. So when you, let's say, for instance, you have had a ECU electronic control unit that runs the engine in your combine or in your pickup truck or in your wife's car, whatever it may be. Right. And that's, let's say you have a, a Ford F-150 use that as an example. So you have this ECU that runs the engine and it possibly runs the transmission shifts, the transmission does everything. So for you, it's a unit, it's all assembled right it's all some you don't really you don't see the circuit board it's all enclosed in a case and but if you were to take that apart and look at it that for the most part the components on that circuit board are generic so when who so when Ford designs that ECU or John Deere or Massey Ferguson or whoever it may be is designing that ECU they're designing, their, their, their electronic designer is designing this circuit board and he's specifying he needs this resistor, this, this semiconductor, this transistor, this diode, whatever, and maybe just naming electrical components. And then what will happen is that somebody makes that ECU and what they're in essence, what they're doing for the most part. And, and this is coming to light today because they say oh, there's a chip shortage. And I got my own thoughts on that, which we won't go there. All right, read between the lines of my sound of my voice, but they said it's a chip shortage. So the slang for a lot of people are the components on the circuit board. Some people call it a chip in it used to be when you said a chip, it meant that it had something to do with a microprocessor and usually it's a memory, but I don't think that that's broad that today they're just using the word chip. So it's the components on the circuit board. So getting back to that Ford ECU is that they design the ECU and then whether whether Ford makes it themselves or they, they sub it out to somebody else to make an electronics house that they come and they give them a specifications. They give them a recipe, right? And they give them a blueprint because electronics, a circuit board, would have a blueprint just like you'd have a blueprint for a a piston or a crankshaft you'd have a schematic and you'd have a blueprint type of schematic to design the circuit board and then they, they they put the board they get the board and they put all these different parts on it now i'm not going to say that none of this stuff is application specific and none of it is made to order. I'm not going to say that, uh, for the most part, from my experience, that is not the case. That's usually off the shelf items that go onto these circuit boards, but maybe there is something unique in that particular circuit board or unique to that brand. So maybe all Fords have this type of whatever micro, uh, uh, semiconductor in it, what have you. But then again, like I said, it's, it's going to the supermarket and buying things off the shelf to make a recipe. Now, when it comes to the OEs, I don't care whether it's Ford or it's John Deere or it's Kubota or whatever it may be, Chrysler, Stellantis. Now, where they got that name? Who knows? I mean, yeah, I mean, at least before you say I'm a Chrysler guy, I'm a Mopar guy, I'm a Stellantis guy. What the hell is a Stellantis guy? But anyway, I guess well, you can't say Stellantis guy. I guess say Stellantis Parson now. So hey, I'm not going there either. I'll get myself in trouble but they put this together and it becomes this ecu like so like i say it's like a recipe so you have a recipe and they put it all together now what happens and i've mentioned this before in the show is that within electronics there are all different levels of quality and when i'm saying electronics i'm not talking about the unit all assembled the ecu i'm talking about the components that make up the ECU or make up that sensor or make up that solenoid or make up that relay. So there's all different levels of quality. And one of the criteria for quality is drift. And what drift means, just like, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) excuse me, just like, as I said, you're drifting over in a lane is that that circuit will wander. So just like a car would drift in a lane, that circuit will wander. Now, when it wanders it could be that the voltage is changing it could be the resistance is changing but it's going to wander if it's a sensor and a sensor drifts for instance let's say a coolant temperature sensor on a diesel engine in a combine so if this coolant sensor is drifting that the coolant temperature is not go co- is not changing at that particular moment but the sensor is drifting higher or lower so it's saying that the coolant is 220 degrees versus even though it's only 200 then it's saying it's 180 degrees even though it's 200 so that is like the car drifting moving from side to side in the lane so that is what is called drift now on the sensor the sensor has the ability to drift and also the more importantly is that the components the parts on the circuit board inside a main unit for instance like an ecu have the ability or the possibility of drifting now as i was saying is that when you come into electronics is that um there's the one of the criteria of the price point of the electrical component is its resistance to drift and it's resist so in essence, that you don't want it to drift or drift minimally. Now, anybody who is a true electronics designer will come and say, if they listen to this, says Hot Rod Farmer is full of it, that they all drift. Yes, everything does drift, just like if you were to bore a block, and you will machine something, and the bore is supposed to be 4.030, right? Four, and four 4.030. Well, this one may be 4.03005. The other one is 4.03002. The next one is 4.3004. So in other words, there's a little bit of tolerance there. So the thing is that the two things that you're concerned with is the tolerance of the electrical components, how tight the tolerance is, and then the other thing that you could be concerned with is its its inability or its, its defiance to drifting. I don't know if that's a proper term, but its lack of drift. So tolerance would be, all right, for instance, let's say if you're balancing your checkbook, it's, you ah, if it's within $50, I'm happy. So you have a $50 tolerance in your checkbook. Another person, my friend, God rest his soul, Art Hornug, I mean, if <laughs> his checkbook... <laughs> Like I said, God rest his soul, great guy. And uh, but if his, I mean, he, I, I'd come to his house, and he'd be like pulling his hair out. Says, "I'm one penny off of my checkbook." I said, "How long have you been working on? All day long. I don't know where I, where I made the mistake." <laughs> so, it's so like I said, God rest his soul. But you know, so his tolerance for for drift in his in his checkbook was was not even one penny. It was had to be zero zero. So that is the tolerance of a component so if it's supposed to for a resistor supposed to be five ohms it's going to be five ohms not 5.1 not 4.9 it's going to be five ohms whereas if you have a lower cost a cheaper piece of a a resistor it may this one may be five ohms this one may be 5.5 ohms this may be 4.7 ohms and if they have an acceptable range of tolerance then they're saying well it's in that tolerance now what happens is that so there is a there is a tolerance as far as its specification concerned but what we're not talking about that today we are talking about drift and drift historically is impacted or or evoked by temperature so when something gets hot, something when it gets cold, historically, usually it's more of a component of heating than cooling, but it, co- it could go the other way. So you could have a resistor, using a resistor because it's easier for you to envision and think about than, a, than a, um, a semiconductor or a diode. But if you have a resistor and the resistor is 5 ohms, our uh, tolerance is 5 ohms plus or minus point, point zero 0.01. All right so are well, beautiful we got 5 ohms it's 0.01 tolerance so well let's say 0.1 for make it easier so it either going to be 5.1 ohms from the factory or 4.9 ohms no more tolerance all right then that no more range in that but the other component of the design and the quality of the, comp- of the part is that, yes, it's five ohms, beautiful, and sp- but what happens? Does it drift under high temperature? Does it drift under cold? Does it drift under higher input voltage? So all of these things come into play. But historically, when you say that something is drifting, and I like to use the word skewing, it is usually temperature related. So now what does this mean to you? Well, why I'm taking your time with this show today is because when you have a drift, a drifting electronic component, it is very, very hard for you to diagnose. And it all depends on what the component is. So let's say arguably it is, you have a coolant sensor in an engine. And it's a fuel inject engine, be it a common rail diesel or a gasoline engine, and it's using this coolant temperature reading to determine is one of the decision making processes in the fueling of the engine. And there you go and let's say the coolant is two hundred ten degrees, and the and the uh, sensor is drifting, and it's saying it's one ninety five. Well, you know that's not going to make any difference in that particular instance because. The, you're not going to change your engine management strategy from 195 degrees and now it's 200 degrees or vice versa but now let's say that that sensor drifts when it gets very cold and as an aside to this i don't want to confuse you but the most sent temperature sensors are thermistors not resistors a resistor when it heats up the it's designed for its resistance to go up whereas a thermistor is the opposite when it heats up its resistance goes down we're not talking about the specification we're talking about how it responds to different temperatures so if you have a coolant temperature sensor it has to respond to hot and cold so that is not drifting or skewing because there would be a chart for that and say okay it should have 212 ohms at 60 degrees 280 ohms at uh, at uh, uh, 80 degrees and what have you and there'll be a chart a specification chart so that's i don't want to confuse you with what i said before about temperature induced that's designed to be that way but if the, now if this starts to drift and you may find that this sensor drifts not at heat but on cold so in other words and it or it it skews which is another word for drifting so let's say arguably you come out one morning and it's 10 degrees out. Well if this coolant sensor says it's 62 degrees, then what's going to happen is most likely that engine is not going to start because its fuel delivery is going to be too lean for for 10 degrees out because it thinks it's 62 degrees. So keep that in mind. Now the same thing will happen with an oxygen sensor. Same thing can happen with a potentiometer. Potentiometer is a three-wire sensor like a throttle position sensor. Is that you could find that those will drift also. They have the potential to drift. I shouldn't say they will drift also. They have the potential to drift. So let me make some sense of this for you and give you practical application, because we're good is it right. This was be a transfer of knowledge, I said. So we've identified that when you buy an, when an electronic component is purchased, that there is a price point, and the price point is first going to tighten up the tolerance for manufacturing, and the second thing in the price point is going to is going to control or determine how much drift that, that component is allowed to have. And now, when you, now that we're having these farm tractors, we're having these combines, these road vehicles, pickup trucks, semis, a lot of guys are buying used semis, rightfully so, to haul grain, because you could buy a used Freightliner or built for a lot cheaper than you can a pickup truck. And then you could haul a lot more grain with that to the grain than, than a one-ton pickup truck. So the thing is that, so we're starting to see now this this equipment would would with, with a high degree of electronics on them 20, 30 years old, 15 years old. now whatever it may be, they're getting old. And over time, what will happen? It gets down to heating and cooling, also, but specifically heating, and I've used this word so many times on this show. It's called thermal cycling. So it goes from above ambient temperature to 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 I don't want to say below. It goes from one temperature above it and then below it. So the thing is that obviously ambient temperature. If it's if it's ten below zero, that's ambient. I used the wrong word. So it's a, it's a, it's an excursion, a trip, hot and a trip cold. So in the summertime, let's say you have an engine and it has a sensor on it It has an ecu under the hood so it goes from ambient temperature 90 degrees to maybe 250 to 300 degrees under the hood now what's going to happen so that's a thermal excursion that way so it's going from one point it's getting hotter so now in the wintertime you shut that engine off you go 50 miles and it's let's say 180 200 degrees under the hood it's not as hot under the hood as it is in the summertime because the ambient temperature outside is lower and let's say it's zero outside so now what will happen is that piece of electronics got went up to 190 degrees under the hood and then when you left the vehicle and you shut it off, and, you, and overnight it got down to zero degrees, and then the next morning it was zero degrees under the hood. So it first went up to 190 degrees, came down, went and went down to zero degrees. So so it had a 190 degree thermal excursion, and over time this will impact not only the the drift but the tolerance of the electronics so now getting back to bringing value to you for listening to me is this that as as this this equipment gets older so you identify that it needs a new that this engine needs a new coolant sensor this engine needs a new or or, or ecu i'm not going to say new because you're not getting a new one you're getting a remanufactured one and this is no knock on the remanufacturing community and i've kind of i've said this before but it's very important that you buy a quality part or what you perceive to be quality so let's say you determine that this ecu is is went bad in this john deere combine use that as an example we're in harvest right and you, it's a ten-year-old combine. This whatever this ECU runs, the engine we will say. And now you go to town, and you determine it's the ECU. And you go to the, you go, you buy an ECU. Whether you buy it from John Deere or somebody else, I don't know who else make has remanufactured ECUs for John Deere, but I'm sure they do. And you get this ECU, and you're happy as a lock, and you plug it in. And then let's say what the component that failed on this ECU is a uh, semiconductor. And John Deere had made a specification for the semiconductor to have this tolerance brand new and this an an acceptable amount of drift. Well, the rebuilder buys a yes, it's the same semiconductor part number, but it's not made to the same quality. So now it's so it's it's tolerances is skewing and also its drift potentially is skewing. So now you put this into your combine, you go out, you start to work, everything is fine, and now all of a sudden it gets hot underneath the hood or the damp that today, like when I went to um, Virginia, it was 80 degrees. Today is 52 degrees. All right, now it's hot under the hood or and something, and, and then all of a sudden this combine starts to act up, this monitor starts to act up, this truck starts to act up, whatever it may be. All right, the thing is that so... And you say, what the heck is going on here? And it's acting up. And the the thing is that when a sensor or a semiconductor or piece of electronics drifts, so we're gonna use the word skews. When it's skews, there's no way for you to anticipate how that piece of equipment is going to respond. So this makes no sense to you. you say, what's going on Why is it doing this? Never did that before. Yeah, it ran great until the ECU took Took a dump, but now I put this thing and it's not idling right. It's not doing this when it gets hot. So, excuse me, it's not. It's not doing. So that is historically a drift scenario or a skewing scenario. Now I've seen many times over the years of people buying an an aftermarket oxygen sensor, and I've seen many times where they put an aftermarket oxygen sensor into a a, a pickup truck, a car, minivan, what have you, and the thing ends up bucking, it ends up doing this setting, check engine lights, you say, and all of these problems. And that's because that oxygen sensor was not made to tolerance and the tolerance on it is is off and it's when it's getting hot it's skewing or drifting something is happening and then there's many things that could happen to electronic components i'm going to put it on the drift but ultimately in essence it would be just like you could say well a flat tire where well, you get a flat tire because the valve stem is leaking you get a flat tire because the, because there's a nail end you get t- a flat tire because there's a screw in it you get a flat tire because the the uh the bead the rim is all corroded and the bead is leaking they're all flat tire right so there's there's no air in the tire when you come out in the morning, they're flat, but they're flat for a different reason. So the the important thing that I wanted to tell you with today's show is that if that number one is that you need to understand that electronic components over time will age and they usually start to drift, just like an older person doesn't keep the car steady in the lane. They start to drift. They start to wander, and in, and <clears throat> this wandering could drive you crazy in a in a, in a diagnosis now the on the best thing the only way you're going to determine this is to have some way to confirm this so if you're looking at a temperature sensor let's say a coolant temperature sensor every manual have a chart and say well x amount of temperature say 200 degrees this sensor should be whatever 52 ohms i'm making up numbers and you read and you take your non-contact thermometer okay it's it's around 52 degrees it's four it's 57 degrees it's 49 degrees close enough all right so you modify that that say instead of instead of you know 50 50 ohms it's got 47 ohms but a little bit less than than the temp test temperature so that's fine and another way to look at it is that if you have some sort of scan tool where you could read the data that the ECU was seeing and, and I've said this uh in other shows before that there are scan tools for Tier 4 diesel engines they're quite expensive all right there are scan tools but a scan tool becomes a very very valuable and time consuming a timer saving tool, not consuming a time consuming tool, because you could plug into some sort of connector, whether it's underneath the dash, underneath the hood, and you could read that serial data stream and you look at it and you say, hey, look at this. Uh that the uh, the coolant says it's 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 eighty two degrees and it's twenty degrees outside. That's why this thing isn't starting. So it's not giving you enough fuel. Now also as they add all of these controls to different farm equipment to different uh to to road vehicles to engines what have you different aspects of the vehicle like a lot of vehicles today end up having a uh, evaporator temperature sensor for the air conditioner so they measure the evaporative temperature evaporator temperature and i've heard of some of these sensors skewing that the vehicle's not that old and they're skewing and what's happening is that the air conditioner system is icing up because they're never cycling the compressor because it thinks the evaporator is is 58 degrees when the evaporator should be 34 degrees so it keeps running the ac compressor instead of cycling on and off and then what happens is that you end up freezing up the system so this is all because of skewing and because of drift now another thing to keep in mind is that some control circuits or some sensors that control a circuit have what is identified as a hysteresis and what a hysteresis is is a different turn on point and a different shut off point and the best example the easiest example for me to explain a hysteresis to you is an electric cooling fan on an engine so you may have an electric cooling fan that that becomes evoked at 200 degrees using easy arithmetic But the hysteresis is designed that once it hits 200, it has to go down to 180 before the fan shuts off because if it did not have this hysteresis... Then what would happen if the fan went on at 200 and when the coolant got down to 199, it would shut off. Then when it went back up to 200 and go back on, when it got down to 199, it would shut off. So a hysteresis gives a different temperature or a different condition for starting and stopping. So for instance, like my well pump or anybody's well pump, right? So I have a, I have a well pump, we live on the farm right and they have a well pump and my well pump is uh is a submersible but my well tank is in the basement here so we have the pressure switch on the well pump so i have a 40 60 switch so the hysteresis on that well switch is 20 psi so what happens is that the pump gets evoked when the when the tank pressure goes down to 40 psi and then it builds up until it hits 60 psi and then it shuts off so if we didn't, if it, the switch did not have that hysteresis, then what would happen is that it would go on at 40. At 41, it would shut off, right? Because it went over 40. So the thing is that, and if it didn't have a hysteresis, then it would go up to 60. And then at 59 pounds of pressure, it would come back on again. So the thing is that lots of times when you have some sort of switch slash sensor that has a hysteresis, so it turns on in one condition and shuts off at another. Or I shouldn't say condition state. Is that that if you have a a cheap one that's not well made, or it could be. I mean, you know, I don't like to say not well made because you could have a a, a, a switch or a sensor that's beautifully assembled, beautifully soldered, but the parts on the board that they are, are skewing. So it's not that it's not well made. So the thing basically is so so for instance, if I put a water pump on an engine and I do a beautiful job putting the water pump on, but it leaks out of the seal, well, it's not my installation. It's the seal that's not the the, the vent hole leaking out of the vent hole. So the thing is that if the take-home message here is that be mindful of drift and be mindful of a wide range of tolerance in electrical components and electronic parts that you buy for your farm equipment or your road vehicles as they age because of it being a price sensitive market and everybody wants to make the most money is that what happens is that they'll they'll get the prop they'll get a resistor or a semiconductor or a diode very very common with alternators all right is that that you that they have a diode that that i don't want to say drifts but skews and a diode is a one-way electrical check valve so that diode is fine at this temperature but when it gets up to a certain temperature it starts to pass current both ways and then when it cools down a little but doesn't pass current both ways so now you have an alternator that's sometimes working properly and sometimes feeding unrectified ac So that is something that you have to, I keep using words, something. It is a fact of life. And as I said, this equipment gets older just because you replace something that's electronic. It may bring a host of different problems than you had with the failed part. So what I want you to recognize is number one is that the tolerance is very, very important. The second thing basically being that it is very common for low to high tolerance or, or low quality electronic parts to drift and skew and and also even even if it doesn't drift and skew in that particular part that it may have the wrong hysteresis i used to see this a lot when i had my shop with backward with engine cooling fan fan switches that the fan would Was designed to go on at 220 degrees and shut off at 190. The fan switch would go bad, and you'd put an aftermarket one in, and the fan would not go on to 225 and it would shut off at at 215. So now the person saying is the car is always running hot, but is the fan cycling? Yes, the fan is cycling, but the hysteresis and the two set points are wrong. So this is an FYI. Keep that in mind. You need to be cognizant of that. Always try and I say this to you to try to buy the highest quality parts that you can all right and for the most part that's going to be oe even if it's a remanufactured or or rebuilt it's usually gonna you're gonna get the highest quality from an oe and even if you get into a brand new part that's not original equipment keep in mind that that circuit board on that ecu or the internal was my father would say guts in that sensor or in that relay or in that well pump switch. I mean, I've had well pump switches that I mean they came well that's a misadjust. Well, I mean, they came from the factory misadjusted. Supposed to be forty sixty and they're not forty sixty. So anyway, so keep that in mind and as we add more electronics to all our equipment to our vehicles these problems these issues of a drifting of it skewing especially when it ages is going to is going to uh come back and that come back is going to start to become very very apparent and very common and you'll end up chasing your tail with that so what you need to do is try to confirm the output of that switch or that sensor if you if it's something that goes to an ecu if you have the ability for instance like on a road vehicle even if you bought a cheap scan tool for $150 or $100 it would give you some idea of reading the coolant temperature throttle position sensor intake air temperature oxygen sensor so you could have that as a as a as a quick way of determining what's going on and and then also just beware be mindful that this is, and that's the most important message. Just be mindful, this is a phenomenon, that it happens, it's out there, and over time, the more you get involved with it. And that's, you know, and I'm gonna divest, that, that's why I'm against all of these, uh, Autonomous vehicles, and I've done shows on that. And, yeah, I mean, yeah, you could get it to work in the laboratory, and whether the laboratory is a 500-acre field for an autonomous tractor or a track with a uh, or a a, road, a course with a with a car, yeah. But what happens once all this electronics starts to drift? What happens when you when some kind of controller that's steering it goes goes bad, and then you buy an aftermarket one, and the resistor is supposed to be five ohms, and the resistor is seven ohms right well does it steer now into a tree i mean i'm being ridiculous but all of this really is apparent and uh and 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 concern for me and concern for you as you as you start to farm with more electronics because over time you are going to see this and it's going to be very commonplace and you say well this is wrong and this is junk well it's not junk what it basically is it's built with cheap parts and it's built without a tolerance. Parts so would be like taking spark plugs and gapping them at all different gaps and putting them in the motor So, which is that tolerance is there, and then you end up the end up understanding that they could have drift. So, hopefully, you found some value in this. I think I rambled on a little bit too much. I apologize for that. So, remember, hysteresis is a range, a different on and off on and off operating state drift is the sensor usually or the circuit skewing in one way and then the tolerance is what is designed from the factory so how much tolerance does it come does it come out of the factory with and if you have a lot of tolerance with a new that may very extrapolate out to you buying a new part that doesn't work in your application because the tolerance is so far out of range in engineering we call it a stack up of tolerances so the tolerances all go one way and that's really the engineering definition of a lemon is that all the tolerances went away because then you hearing you well this resistor is a little, bit, has a little bit too much but this circuit has a little bit too little so it kind of cancels out this bore is a little bit too big but the piston is a little bit too uh, is a little bit too small on this one so it kind of all cancels out and that's what we call a stack up of tolerances everybody so uh if you have any questions or any concerns with that or any stories with having new electrical or rebuilt electrical components that caused you uh they ran better without it right is that just give me send me an uh, email at hot rod farmer at farm machinery digest.com so now what we're going to do is we're going to bring tex rubinowitz in and put your thinking cap on for a toolbox test come on tex from ripsaw records all right Tex. thank you so much okay here's our toolbox test all righty you were out yesterday side dressing your corn, and it was hot out the air conditioner in the tractor was not working too well and you noticed that you heard the ac compressor cycling on and off quickly you stopped in the field and got out and opened the hood the compressor was kicking the clutch in and out every few seconds you got the nitrogen and micronutrients down but it was not a comfortable ride which farmer knows why the compressor was cycling so fast farmer a says that the alternator must be weak and not supplying enough juice for the compressor farmer b thinks that the condenser is plugged with chaff and the debris in the system has no air Farmer C tells you the temperature control in the cab is bad and putting the heat on at the same time. And Farmer D insists that the AC is low on refrigerant. So you think about that. And I'm going to look for my question over here. They're ready. Well, I know what his question is. And this is John from, make sure I have this correct here. Yeah, John from Holyoke, Holyoke uh, Colorado. Now, what John had said to me is that he has this 2012 F 350 with a 6.7 liter Power Stroke. I do not know if he bought the truck new or not, and uh, it's basically stock. He didn't do anything to it. I think it, if I recall, it has a newer turbo on it, but it's a Ford turbo. I think it's a little bit bigger turbo from a later one because his turbo had failed, and it's got the supposedly has the proper calibration in it now he uses the truck for work work meaning hauling things i don't know particularly what he hauls so he's not using it as a commuter vehicle i'm not going to say it's never driven as a as a car but it's, it's basic it's its main function in life is to work and that's just, it has about two hundred thousand miles on it and he, and from what i could glean he takes excellent care of it all right so we have that all so what is basically has happened is that now <clears throat> after he put the new turbo on but and from what he told me it didn't happen right away so what we're going to basically do diagnostic wise we're going to keep our we're going to keep in the back of the mind that it has the new turbo but we're not going to chase it down that road and that's a diagnostic thing you always have to you, you keep something in the back of your mind as a data point but you don't necessarily want to go down that road and i'm going to make a ridiculous uh uh Example, so for instance, we put the new turbo on, and then uh, then all of a sudden the, the brake light burns out. Well, did the turbo have something to do with the brake light? No, but it's very easy to say. Well, ever since I put that turbo on, the brake light went out. And to be ridiculous, I like to give ridiculous examples to drive home a point. So we're going to keep that in the back of our mind. Now the problem that he is having is that on occasion, when the system goes into regeneration of the diesel particulate filter. It goes the truck will go into what they call a D-rate strategy. And I will explain all that to you succinctly without belaboring it. On a on a tier four emission system diesel, all right, there is usually a diesel oxidation catalyst, there is a diesel particulate filter, and there's a supplemental, I mean selective catalytic reduction SCR system. Now the SCR system uses a mix of deionized water and urea which is called diesel exhaust fluid and this diesel exhaust fluid sprays into the scr system selective catalytic reduction and that is to control an emission called oxides of nitrogen that so if you look at the exhaust system on a modern diesel engine the diesel oxidation catalyst comes first the next in line is the diesel particulate filter. And the last in line, if it has it, is the SCR system. So that is always the, the, the chronology of how those components are. And they're all called after treatments because they're treating the exhaust outside of the cylinder. Excuse me, after it came from the engine. Now the purpose of the diesel oxidation catalyst is to control carbon monoxide and hydrocarbons. The purpose of the diesel particulate filter some people call it a soot trap is to is to trap and hold like a trap so like a, like a, flo- a moth trap or a rat trap to trap and hold right the particulate matter which is the black smoke we see from a diesel engine and then the SCR is selective catalytic reduction system is to control an emission called oxides of nitrogen which is created through pressure heat and what i call exposure time some people call residence time so those are the three those are the three systems that are in the exhaust of a modern diesel engine now what what john is saying on occasion when he goes into read when the truck goes into regen it also may evoke a d rate now let's explain succinctly regen for those people who aren't familiar with it. the diesel particulate filter catches the soot all right catches the soot which is called particulate matter and it holds it there at one particular point it needs this this soot would plug up the whole diesel particulate filter so what it does is that it, it burns the soot, and when it burns the soot, it, take, it, go, it turns into ash, and there's a, there's a floor in this diesel particulate filter, so basically like a chamber for this ash to fall down. So the easiest way for me to explain it for those who aren't familiar with it is that if you think of an old charcoal barbecue grill, so when you put the charcoals in then they're big, right? So that's the soot, that's the soot, that's the particulate matter coming out of the diesel engine, which we see as black smoke. But there's soot there even if you don't see any visible smoke. And then after you're done with the barbecue, right? You made the hamburgers, the hot dogs, the sweet corn, right on there, right? And the and the and the briquettes, the charcoal briquettes, all burned out. What do you do? You have ash in the bottom of the... The barbecue grill, so the briquettes took up a lot more room than the ash, right? So that's what's happening in the diesel particulate filter. But what that is called a regeneration process. So it's regenerating and and simply means you're converting the, the soot to ash. How it converts the soot to ash is by using the diesel oxidation catalyst and fuel, diesel fuel, and using that catalyst as a furnace to heat up the 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 diesel particulate filter to about a thousand degrees fahrenheit and to maintain that for about 40 45 minutes and that was going to burn like you breaking the hamburgers right the charcoal briquettes don't turn to ash in two seconds they got to burn out, and that's what happens so now historically on a diesel engine a tier 4 diesel we're talking about with all these components on it is that What can happen if there's a failure in the emission system, it's called a D-rate. And there's different types of D-rates. Now, some D-rates will go and limit the the power of the engine to 50%, and some will be speed-limited, be speed-limited, and some will first do a power limit, and some will next go, if you don't do anything to fix it, goes to a speed limit. So what happens, I believe in his email, John said that That the truck, if it goes into this d-rate mode, that it drops down to maximum speed is about thirty miles an hour. Now you may get some large engines like a like a a Cummins or something in a Peterbilt that may drop down to five miles an hour. So, all right. So, let's break away for a second here. That is part of the calibration. I do not know whether a 2012 6.7 liter F350, when it derates, whether it goes to 50 percent power. Or it goes to a it goes to a mile an hour limit, mile speed limit, right? But that's regardless of what's happening here. Now, historically, the only time, or the most common time, I won't say only, but the but when you when a truck will experience a diesel engine, not enough to be a truck will experience a D rate, is when the SCR system the selective catalytic reduction system has some sort of failure or runs out of diesel exhaust fluid or what have you so the thing that is happening here is that during a regeneration process has nothing to do with the scr We're, we're burning off the soot and turning it to ash so why is this truck going into and then doesn't do it all the time. It's going into a D-rate during an SCR, it a DPF reburn, and a re- regen cycle. So that is what is tricking me. Because if you were to say to me, "Well, <clears throat> it goes into a uh, it goes into a a a, uh, a D-rate cycle," and then you say, "Okay, let's look at the let's look at the the doser." For the uh, DEF dose, so let's look at the uh, at the selective catalytic reduction. Let's look at the temperature sensors there, what have you. But historically, most of the time, in most applications, because you always could find something that skews slightly, right? Most application is that you will not go into a D rate, minimizing power or road speed when you're doing a a regen. So now what I think is happening, John, and I may be 100% wrong. What I think is happening is that the diesel particulate filter, the truck has 200,000 miles on it. I think the diesel particulate filter is just about filled up with ash. So it has no more capacity to it. And I think what's happening is that something in the calibration doesn't like it. Now, these calibrations are very complex. Now, I mean, they're very, very complex with multiple layers. And the thing is that, so the the first thing that I would do is I would talk to the Ford dealer and see if there's a reflash for that problem and what a reflash would do it's not fixing anything mechanically it's saying well don't look at that right now don't worry about that don't worry about that so and because of its inconsistency Is that there may be a reflash for that so you want to look at that and if there is no reflash for it now through the dashboard controls he's able to read he told me the flow restriction in the dpf and he's not seeing a large flow restriction all right but what i think is happening is that is skewing and i think based upon the whole not because i did this show today i think that's skewing i think there's a dynamic that is involved and i feel if it were my truck i would first look for a reflash and then i would look to take that diesel particulate filter off and have it serviced and they go through a special procedure where they clean out the ash and i think may be wrong i think that it's right on the cusp and depending upon how the ash is laying in there what temperature the ash is holding and all these other dynamics because you have to remember calibration this is not like an act of god where you say water flows downhill and gravity pulls something towards the earth there could be a table in there that's skewing slightly There could be so and the inconsistency of it of it sometimes it goes into a, a regen with no problem All next time it's going to want to derate. So the inconsistency of it, it tends for me to think that the DPF is filling up with ash why isn't do it this time? maybe way it blew into the into the DPF maybe the way it, the air you went up a hill and uh, it blew more to the back. I have no idea. I mean I have no idea. but that's what gets you with these with these systems with these layers and layers of calibrations in them and different criteria in the calibration that you could possibly say that it sees something and because remember that a calibration is like a go no go gauge if it sees something one degree off or one psi off it flags it and says this is it we're going into d rate but the take-home message here is that it is not supposed to derate during a regen process And it's not that it would never derate during a regen, but usually the only time that would happen is that some vehicles, and I don't believe his truck has that ability, is that you could keep overriding the regen cycle and after so many times overriding there's a button you could press that you override the regen cycle and you keep overriding and overriding overriding or it's the type of vehicle let's say like a for utility company and it's idling a lot and it you override the regen cycle and it can't regen based upon what john told me is that this truck has a lot of use and has a lot of use under load so there's no reason for it to go into a D rate for a regen cycle, and I'm saying that I think that the DPF needs to be clean. So, to repeat, John, talk to the Ford dealers, see if they have a reflash for that. If they don't have a reflash, I would recommend looking into getting that diesel particulate filter serviced. It doesn't need to be replaced. They take them off, they clean them, and they put them back in. You put them back in. There some some places have what they call a rebuilt service. It's not rebuilt, right? What they'll basically do is take the take your old one on exchange. They'll give you another one, they'll which will be clean, and they usually sometimes change the bungs if there's a sensor bung there, what have you, because over time, so it's not rebuilt it's a cleaned cleaned diesel particulate filter and i tend to think that it is uh, loading up with ash so please let me know and we'll continue this dialogue so everybody else learns so getting back to our toolbox test as we get ready to close farmer d is correct when a modern ac system is low on refrigerant it will cycle the clutch on and off quickly and the duct discharge temperature will be high so that's historically a hallmark of of low refrigerant. I don't want to use the word Freon because Freon was actually a brand name for uh for R12. So it's low on refrigerant. Historically, the systems will cycle quickly, on and off, on and off, on and off. The hysteresis will be wrong. All right. So that is what the story is. I want to thank you so much for tuning in today, and uh, hopefully you enjoyed the show and learned a little bit about about drift. and 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 acknowledging it so when you're diagnosing something you say let's see what happens when this thing gets hot what's going on here right when it gets cold so drift and the tolerances that are made into better electronics and how that can affect you and send you down the wrong path when you're diagnosing and know that the hot rod farmers pulling for you the american farmer and rancher in my beloved beloved america and i thank you so much for listening and for being hot rod farmers And uh, I I honor and and, and respect all of you. You have a blessed day. Bye-bye.